I think I got all of my swearing out of me this week when I tried to have dinner in my sukkah and it dumped buckets of rain on top of me during that monsoon that hit the Northeast on Tuesday night. But if any swearing is left, it might come out on this show. So, you know, watch your ears. This has been your obscenity warning. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Happy Sukkot. Happy Sukkot. Chag Sukkot Sameach. I feel like Leo Leibowitz should be saying I that. I know, I know. But he's not here. He's on a red eye somewhere. It's like we're finally back in the studios and- And we're not full, We're not whole. We're not whole. We're like, <laughs> it's like, and one of her arms is missing. Uh, he will be back next week. But this week, um, a Sukkot episode. Now, for those of you who are maybe a little sick of the special episodes, we should say this is this is mostly a normal episode, right? Because we're here. Yeah, and we can't help it that there are so many Jewish holidays so right many. now. We have to respond to, you know, you know, what's going on out there. The call of the calendar. In terms of guests this week, what we have is a lot of really cool pieces from outside the studio that have to do with the harvest holiday of Sukkot. We are in the middle of Sukkot, or as the 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 old timers, the Yiddishists say, Sukkot. And this is the holiday where we build Sukkot in our backyards and we can dwell in them or just eat in them or just drink in them. And then we, we shake the lulav and the etrog, the, the palm frond and the little citrus fruit that you will see people carrying around in their neighborhoods to and from synagogue. And, and basically, it's a holiday that has a lot to do with uh, with the outdoors. It's a harvest holiday. It's had a bit of a renaissance in contemporary America. People really, really dig Sukkot uh, these days who, who never would have celebrated it growing up. Like even secular people love Sukkot these days. So we leave the studio. We're traveling to California to talk to etrog farmers, people who who farm the uh, the little yellow citrusy fruits that, that we need. Uh, we travel to the Upper West Side to check out the scene at a Judaica store right before uh, the holiday begins. And Stephanie goes and visits a small town that was once famed for its Jewish chicken farmers. Um, we're going to have a mother clucking good time. Wow. I wrote that wow. one. You like that one? Yeah. You like that one? I'm, I'm just punning it up. It is good to be back in the studio, though. Um, I don't know. What, what's up? With, I haven't seen you punim to punim. I mean, you have a new child. Have you been in the studio since then? I have not been in the studio since then. You will recall that um, the morning after he was born. Oh, yeah, you called I, in. I called in from my home studio at Oppenshire Manor in New Haven. Um, I have not been in the studio since then. It's good, it's good to you be back. You look good. And people want to know officially what the baby's name is. Right. So I went on to Sid's Facebook account and I, uh, I, I told the Facebook family, but I have not announced it. You know, it's not really official until... Until I announced it on the air, uh, David Walter Oppenheimer. Love it. Born nine three nineteen, and thank you. Um, and David is after a a brother who of mine who died in infancy. I had a brother who who was born prematurely, who um, at twenty weeks or something, and and died. And his name was David. And so I'd always wanted to use a boy's name for him, yeah. but you but know, you gotta have a boy. To you do gotta have a boy to do that. <laughs> um, the girls just kept coming, and then Walter was my grandfather. Walter was. Uh, was my beloved maternal grandfather, um, and so yeah, little little David Walter. We're calling him Davy. For, like not we didn't we didn't decide we're calling him Davy. He's a Davy. He's, I mean, he's a baby. Yeah, you look down and he's like he's like Davy. It's weird because you feel like in the 19th century there were like Davy Crockett and stuff, but it no one says Davy in the 20th 21st century. Well, it's funny to me to think about like names we think of as older people's names, like of a, gen- a few generations ago, like Muriel. Oh yeah, you know like. Those were babies once. Yes, yes, but but it occurred to me it's you had your first anniversary since I last saw you. I did my first wedding anniversary. I'm glad that we can you know bring discussion of my wedding into 5779. Totally, like you know we kind of I don't know that we we did it that much in 5778 because actually my wedding was I think in 
my wedding was since 57, 77. It feels yes. like years ago. Yes. Um, but we had our first anniversary. We ate that. We defrosted the cake, the top of the cake that Molly Ye made us. It's been in my parents' freezer for the past year. Uh-huh. And my mother would remind me of that periodically because actually when I saw it, it was a very big piece. So we defrosted it and just ate it and it was tasted, um, as, tasted incredible. It tastes as if it just come out of Molly's oven. And I finally finished all my thank you notes, which was like a pretty big deal for me. Uh, 370 days after my wedding, I did I did finally okay. get one. So you had said that I didn't give you a gift, but then I got a thank you note for a gift. I said that you didn't give me a gift and then you got me several hand towels on Amazon, which I felt compelled to thank you for. <laughs> well, if I got them, it was because they were on your registry. No, no, no. Yeah, I know. Oh, okay. You like got I... me some things on Amazon. Okay, 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 okay. Oh. There were hand towels. I think of you when I wash my hands. <laughs> well, okay. Well, you're welcome. Has life been different as a married person or like not at all? Um, there's an interesting way in which I'm both like socially completely non-viable, but also socially acceptable. Like society has now placed me as a married person in like, okay, you're fine. Like you, you're, we're done with you. Right. And then also to in a relief in like, like I don't have to like go to the club. Which is really nice for me because I never did that. But like there's a way in which I'm just completely like we're like you, you're both OK because you're in a like a cat in like a very heteronormative category that we understand as a old right. school patriarchy, which is kind of a relief in some weird, stupid way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also like I can wear whatever I want. You know, I'm not impressing no one. A little news of the Jews today. I mean, mostly we're going to get in. We're going to dive into Sukkot. But the first thing, what's amazing is that there actually is Sukkot news of the Jews. This is uh, from the Times of Israel headline. Israeli building sukkah falls from fourth floor is saved by sukkah on ground floor. This is just act of God. Act of God news of the Jews. I'm just going to read from the article. A Jerusalem man building a sukkah fell off his fourth floor balcony on Sunday, but he landed on the sukkah belonging to his ground floor neighbor, breaking his fall and probably saving his life. Neighbors said the 24-year-old man fell while assembling his own sukkah on his balcony. A glass panel he was leaning on broke and the railing gave way. Plummeting downward, he smashed into his neighbor's sukkah on the ground floor. He was taken to Jerusalem's Sharetzetic Hospital with moderate injuries to his lower body. (laughs) This is like literally the most Israeli story I've ever heard, that you fall... And your fall is broken by a sukkah. By a sukkah. That's right. It's like, it's basically the whole country right now is just like a web of, of Yeah, of it's sukkahs. like one of those parachutes they put down for jumpers. Totally. So it's everywhere. Totally. So I don't think you're going to top that news, the juice, but you can try. Okay. I have my favorite story in a long time. Okay. So there's this rapper, Post Malone. I don't know if you're familiar Wait, with. His name is Post Malone? Yes. Post, post first name Malone, last name. Sounds like a syndrome. Um, so the rapper Post Malone is sort of this like young up and coming rapper guy. I don't know. I don't really. So his name is, that's not a prefix to his last name. No, his he's name is Post Malone. Post Malone. I think that's okay. the name he was born with. I'm not sure. Anyway, he was at, so he's, he's gotten himself. He won, he won at the VMAs or performed or something. And then the next day got on a plane to London to do some, some other appearance. And like the plane takes off and then like the wheels all blow out. Mm-hmm. And then. The next day, like armed robbers broke into a house he used to live in. And then like the next day, he, his Rolls Royce was hit. Like so someone was like, is this guy cursed? And then what? And it, you think he has this string of weird things happening to him. What's what's the cause? And I'm, there's a theory out there that the cause of this is a dibbic, the Yiddish <laughs> malicious spirit that dwells in like and the most. It's, it's like a haunt. It's a ghost. It's, it's a ghost. A basi- basically a demon. It's a it's it's a demon in Yiddish folklore. Yeah. And a few years ago, there was this movie, The Possession, which is basically about a dibbuk box, which was like, you know, supposed to be like the most evil, you know, like everything evil is in this box. And he actually went to this, um, this, this haunted museum in June with the host and the host showed him the dibbuk box. Um, and because he was a celebrity, it wasn't covered. And there's this TMZ footage of basically him like trying to leave the room and the guy being like, no man, look. 
and then he touches the guy who's touching the Dybbuk box, and the guy, like, jumps back. And so now there's a theory that Post Malone has been... So Jewish Twitter has decided that the reason No, he's... not Jewish Twitter, like... Like Post like, Malone Twitter, like there's a weird thing. It's not a Jewish oh, thing. It oh, just happens like to be a Dybbuk box. Post Malone's fans think that he's haunted by a Jewish demon. Yeah, and it's just amazing. Wow. We we well, we're everywhere, right? I mean, it's like you know, first they came for Post Malone. Are they... <laughs> Should I go listen to him? Have you listened to Post Malone? His Stephanie? songs are on the radio. His songs are on the radio. Some of them are catchy. I Some mean, it's not like of... a. It's not my. Uh, it's not your jam. Yeah, I don't love, love, love his you stuff. Don't love Post Malone. Um, I really feel it's important that we not end News of the Jews with a story in Post Malone. So maybe you could update us on the um, the mezuzah giveaway. Yes, the mezuzah giveaway. So Apolloid Collection is this amazing new um, modern Judaica company founded by these two very cool sisters. And they basically, we teamed up with them a few weeks ago to offer our listeners 10 mezuzot. And the, the contest is that you have to show us a picture of where you would put this mezuzah. On your door, someplace that are, there already is a mezuzah, you want to update it, a new home. We got these amazing entries. We picked our favorite 10, and we've notified those people, and they are getting their free mezuzot. And I have to say that Daniela reached out to me, and she's of, of Apolloid Collection, and she said, by the way, do you think you're ready for a mezuzah? And I was like, one of these mezuzot? Yes. Yes. Like- I was like, please, a pink one. Ooh. So we'll see. We'll see. TV. Um, so that's Apoloig Collection, A-P-E-L-O-I-G. Thank you for, for their help in, in the contest. And that's that's a nice uh, introduction to the fact that we are going to uh, update all of you on the fund drive and, and which of the three of us won or shall we say lost the competition that we had along with it uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks once Liel is back in the studio. We're not we, we simply can't go down that road while Liel is, you know, 30,000 feet in the air. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? Stephanie, to the mailbox. We have not visited the mailbox in some time, but I took a trip there. You mean there. my mailbox downstairs in my apartment <laughs> that I rarely check? Overstuffed with catalogs? <laughs> no, I mean the only mailbox that counts, the unorthodox mailbox. But I dipped in. I took a, I took a read. I took a gander. There was a lot of good stuff piling up. We do read all our mail. Like this one, Dear Unorthodox, hi, I'm a new listener, so I'm catching up on old episodes and tuning into new ones. One aspect of the apology show that really disappointed me is that you didn't question the whole premise. I was expecting more skepticism that we Jews put ourselves through the existential ringer every year, as if we were all Adolf Eichmanns from the first until the 10th of Tishrei. Growing up religious, there was not a time of year I dreaded more than this period, simply for the reason that I felt personally accused— not to mention all the guilt I felt about that most heinous of sins, masturbation. Yours, Zev. <laughs> Zev, I'm sorry we were not unorthodox enough in our questioning. Yes, we should have mentioned that it can be a trying time for people whose self-flagellation extends to things like masturbation. Zev, we, if it makes you feel better, we forgive you. We think it's okay. So, But it is interesting, like, Liel had this very... Um, holistic approach to Yom Kippur as being this like very spiritually uh, healing day. But, you know, not it's not that for everyone. No, no. For some people, it's just guilt and hunger. Dear Unorthodox, the next letter begins. I love the podcast. A friend introduced me a few months ago, and I've been obsessed ever since. I'm writing to thank you for something specific. I fly a lot. I go to school in a different city than where my family lives. I go home for the major Hagim and other events. I'm an incredibly nervous flyer, and I much prefer my feet on solid ground to being in the air. I've tried everything to calm my nerves, books, my favorite music, sleeping, nothing has worked. 
On a recent flight, I decided to turn on an old episode of Unorthodox as I couldn't focus on the book I was reading. For the first time in years, I got through turbulence with a smile on my face. I didn't grip the armrests in fear. I even let out a laugh or two. Unorthodox took my mind off my fear of flying and made an hour of my life that's usually quite unpleasant a fun and entertaining hour instead. I can't thank you enough for providing me with this hashtag life hack. You've truly made my life better. All the best and thank you for the service you do the Jewish people through the podcast. Happy birthday. Sincerely, Julie. I like that we are making Jews less anxious, which is, I think, the ultimate (laughs) Talmudic goal of this show. Helping Jews fly since 2015. Unorthodox. And finally, dear Unorthodox, I'm a lone soldier in the Israeli army. So just editorial parenthetical here. That's people who don't have family in Israel. They are from coming from abroad to serve in the army, lone soldiers. I'm a lone soldier in the Israeli army. I wanted to know if you could send a shout out to my amazing parents, Ian Turner and Sippy Pearl Turner from Phoenix, Arizona. I wanted to thank them for always being there and for pushing me to be my best. Yours, Sarah Kalanit Turner. So it's great to hear from Sarah because we've heard, we we know from Sippy Turner. Yeah. We hear yeah. from her. She's one of our one of our best listeners. Original listeners yeah, back OG, in the day. Yeah, OG, listening with the kids. And she would mention that one of her kids was in Israel. So- and Sarah, thanks for listening. Yeah, and now we want to hear from your siblings and your cousins and, uh, you know. I think her brothers were on the show, our listener show. That's right. Talking about something that they liked. So we need to go extended relatives. We need to go Pearls and Turners from outside of the Phoenix mishpucha. Anyway, Sarah, of course, a shout out to to Ian and Sippy and to to all of the listeners who have been with us since the beginning and the ones who just joined. um, A happy Sukkot to you. Speaking of listener mail... Lest you think that any piece of mail goes unread, we can't afford to let your mail go unread because sometimes a letter from one of you means that we have to send Stephanie 3,000 miles away to find the coolest small town chicken farming Jewish story you will ever hear. Have a listen. In May 2017, we got an email from a listener named Robin Hoffman. Robin wrote, the podcast is a welcome injection of humor, culture, news, and religion into my week. I could go on and on, but just know that Unorthodox is being happily and frequently tuned into by some NorCal devotees. And speaking of my area, both literally and figuratively, I am an archaeologist and historian living in Santa Rosa, California, with an office in Petaluma. If you didn't know, Petaluma has a fascinating Jewish history, including late 19th, early 20th century Eastern European socialist chicken farmers, Yiddish-speaking and yodeling cowboys, and even a visit from Golda Meir in the 1930s. I didn't reply, though I did add Robin to our newsletter list, which is the reason he emailed in the first place. But I didn't forget his email, and I did buy the book he recommended, Comrades and Chicken Ranchers, The Story of a California Jewish Community, by Kenneth Kahn. Robin was right. Petaluma has a great story. The first wave of Jews to arrive there were Prussian immigrants during the 1849 gold rush. The next wave of Jewish immigrants in the late 1800s and early 1900s brought with them a different flavor. They were activists, socialists, and communists fleeing Eastern Europe. And they came to Petaluma to be chicken farmers. This past summer, I finally got the chance to visit Petaluma and to sit down with Kenneth Kahn, the author of the book, and Rabbi Ted Feldman, the spiritual leader of the B'nai Israel Jewish Center. Besides the long-abandoned chicken coops visible on the outskirts of town, Petaluma today looks a lot like any suburb. The B'nai Israel Jewish Center on Western Avenue is a mostly nondescript building, except for the large Star of David on the front. This place has seen its share of drama even before it was built. Then, in the 1950s, there was a massive schism within the community. More on that later. But even in the decades that followed, some Petaluma Jews refused to set foot there ever again. I started my visit by meeting with the rabbi. 
I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman. Uh, we're here at B'nai Israel Jewish Center in Petaluma, California. I was Director of Jewish Family and Children's Services of the East Bay. I stayed in my position there until 2005, and then I came here, so I've been here 13 years. Wow, and so what the building that we're in, this is a, an historic... Well, it's not officially designated, but it was dedicated in 1925. I have the minutes of the Board of Directors right over there in that closet uh, from October 22nd, 1864. Yeah, so we've been here 154 years. Of course, the sad part is the agenda of the board meeting is the same as our board meeting this month, too. Those who have been here in my 13 years have been really endearing, and uh, they recall those times with affection and sometimes troubles and all that kind of thing. Our membership is about 120 households, which is small. We estimate about 500 Jewish households or so, at least a household with one Jew in it in Petaluma. The intermarriage rate is very high, of course, in this part of the world. How many of those people are descendants from, or sort of have, have been here for, for generations? You know, I, I would be guesstimating only about 50 families maybe have, have roots. Uh, yeah, the Jewish community was particularly centered in chicken ranching, um, and that became eliminated in Petaluma when the big corporations, Purdue and Tyson and all those, took over the chicken industry. It was a large chicken community. There was even a pharmacy, a chicken pharmacy, uh, downtown on the main street. Uh, to provide medications for the chickens to take care of them. So it was a chicken-centric <laughs> uh, establishment here in Petaluma. But nowadays it looks like a Sonoma County community. There are some Jews involved in farming in the area, not necessarily in Petaluma. Uh, one, uh, one year for Shavuot, we had a whole panel of uh, Jewish uh, people involved in the Industries, uh, we have Strauss Dairies, uh, they're part of our community, and we had a whole panel of Jews talking about their relationship to the Torah and to Jewish tradition, taking that into their work in the, in the field. Right down the street here is a place called Herman's Sons Hall, and uh, in the uh, 40s, and it was the home of the German Bund, and the Nazis would walk by this this building and all of that. And it, every time I drive by there, I still get this feeling. And yet uh, a group of in the community decided to hold an event for the Jewish community there, which is a radical change over the years. Nothing's ever been done. And there's no indication currently that there's any remnants of such thoughts, etc., as there were, you know, the, during the the history of it is, you know, sits inside. What's going on in the building now? We're making, uh, we took down a uh, part of a wall in the next room. So that's the hammering you hear. There's a lot going on. They're getting set up for preschool. We have a bar mitzvah this weekend. There's, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. After I thanked Rabbi Feldman, I was off to my next stop. B'nai Israel Cemetery is the oldest Jewish cemetery in Sonoma County, dating all the way back to 1870. Kenneth Kahn, who quite literally wrote the book on Petaluma, said a visit there was mandatory. If only I can figure out how to get in. Oh, this is Herman's Sons Hall, which is where the German Bund met. 
And that's where the Nazis would come into town in the 30s. Isn't that insane? And so what the rabbi was telling me was that a Jewish group recently rented this hall out for an event, which is just kind of amazing. Hi. I'm looking for the Jewish cemetery. Is that here? I don't know how you get in there because the gate's locked. Oh, okay. If the first gate is open, he says, that's the Jewish cemetery. Yeah, of course the Jewish cemetery is not going to be open. Who doesn't make an appointment? One does not simply walk into it. I'm sorry, that's not funny. Bnei Israel Cemetery. Wow. So what I want to do is find some of the earlier members. Oh, wow. Dorfman, the Colonel Steve. I actually had read about him. Cherished husband, son, brother, and grandson. Morris and Pauline Brody. It is really sad, but it's kind of true. Like if you want to go see the Jewish community, you go to the cemetery. It's super depressing. Oh wow. Fanny, wife of E. Jacobs, died December 2nd, 1879, aged 44 years. Jeez. Oh God, five months. Died in 1875. I mean, this is amazing. You really, really see truly this, this very old community. Oh, Isidore Abraham died in 1892. Casper Abraham, 1891. This is amazing. This is really something. Okay, I am officially being creepy. Gotta go back to my car. All right, time to go. So how did these shoes get to Petaluma to begin with? How do they even know from Petaluma in Eastern Europe? And what's the deal with the chickens? I visited Kenneth Kahn, the author of Comrades and Chicken Ranchers, at his home in San Francisco a few days later to find out. Like tens of thousands or millions of other people, those who ended up in Petaluma were forced out by persecution or they were drawn out by the opportunity of the American economy and American democracy. And so they were part of a waves of emigration that ended up not only in the United States, but also in Palestine. This is the same generation that settled on the kibbutzim and eventually founded the state of Israel. There were waves that went to South America and huge numbers that came to the United States. Most came to the great cities of the Eastern seaboard, but some came uh, to reach California across the Pacific they crossed Siberia, Manchuria, Korea, Japan, and made their way across the Pacific to the west coast of the United States. There were other East European immigrants who came from the East Coast and then became hungry to see more of this, their new, this vast new country they were part of. And there were people who made their way out to California. And they came to Petaluma with the idea that they would learn agriculture and go to Palestine and uh, establish a modern poultry industry. There were some who did that. Most of them stayed. And there were others who just wanted to show the Gentiles that Jews could work with their hands and not be middlemen, which they had been forced to become in Eastern Europe. Petaluma was one of the great poultry and egg centers. Poultry ranching was an occupation you could get into that didn't require a lot of capital. It didn't require a lot of expertise. And so it was easy, and it was an alternative to city sweatshops and pushcarts. This idea of what actually seemed like very politically active people, 
were some of the ones who were who were drawn out to Petaluma. You know, some of them had been in Siberia, like had been in labor camps before this. It's kind of was fascinating. Do you think there was a particular type of person who was attracted to life out here? There were a lot of idealists of various kinds. They were people who believed that Jews could and should work the land, including Zionists in particular, because this is the same impulse that fostered Jewish settlement in Palestine. They were highly political people with commitments to socialism, communism, various forms of Zionism. There were anarchists who were there. There were vegetarians. Anything I used to think that I could find in Berkeley in the 1960s, I could have found in Petaluma in the 1920s. And an interesting dynamic that you you know just mentioned, and it's sort of present in the book, is this idea of proving that Jews can work with their hands, proving that you can work from the land, and just the tension that there were sort of like the Jewish bankers, and then these were the people who were going to prove that Jews actually could make things on their own. There's a chapter title. Oh, about the Kellys and the Cohens? Yeah, here the Kellys live in town and the Cohens live on the farm. I think they took pride in the fact that they were working with their hands. They weren't middlemen. They weren't people in trade. That kind of anti-Semitic charge could not be leveled against them, and there was some pride in that. There were a couple of Jewish merchants in Petaluma, but the great majority of them were raising chickens, working with their hands on farms. And so the book is organized. It's essentially an oral history of this community. I'm wondering, did you have any sort of favorite characters? Ben Hockman, communist chicken rancher who was tarred and feathered in the 1930s, was truly a great man. He and other communists had been helping this local strike, and they were grabbed off their ranches one night and taken to a warehouse in Santa Rosa nearby, near Petaluma and tarred and feathered and marched through the streets. And people in the Jewish community were never certain whether this happened because he was a communist or a Jew, probably both. And they remembered it in the 1940s and 50s. This is the example of what can happen if you're a Jew and a communist. Basha Singerman, one of the communists or progressives in the community, and she had led another extraordinary life. She had grown up in the old country, got involved, was a radicalized there, had a broken love affair. There was an arranged marriage between her and a Jewish settler in Kenya because the British, before they pa- promised Palestine to the Jewish people as a homeland, promised a homeland for the Jewish people in West Africa. And there was, in fact, a Jewish settlement in Kenya. Well, she was the home where when you moved there, you'd stay with her, right? They put up many people who wanted to settle in Petaluma, and they helped stake them on on chicken ranches, her and her husband. So can you explain the big political fracture of the 50s? The fracture was the ousting or banning from the one Jewish community center in town of organizations that were on the Linka or the left communist organizations, or what were called then fellow travelers, sympathizers of the communist movement. Not everybody who was in the Linka in Petaluma on the left was actually a card-carrying communist, but many were. And they were kicked out of the Jewish community center in the late 40s and the early 50s. Their organizations were kicked out. And the reason that was given was that it would be dangerous for the Jewish people, that it would bring down the wrath of the Gentiles. As one of them put it to me, it's hard enough to be a Jew, but a Jew and a communist? Oh my God, this is is an extraordinary thing that happened. Because these were people in a small Jewish community in a sea of Gentiles 
who kick half the community out. These were people who had been friends, acquaintances, community members for decades. It is a sign of the fear that was engendered during the McCarthy era, strong enough to split a community. And there were rumors of people from the Rechka, the right wing in the community. And by the way, the Rechka, the right wing, these are all workman's circle people, socialists. Hardly right wing as right. we know it Labor today. Zionists, also socialists. They were afraid. They had experienced real persecution in the old world. They had lived through pogroms, so they knew what a government could do to an ethnic minority. They had lived through it. For the, their children, the second generation, it's hard to be the child of immigrants because you're always torn between the attractions of the broader American society and the old world community of your parents. And when the McCarthy period came in the late 40s and the early 50s, they were afraid too but afraid of not being accepted as good Americans. That split never healed. How well known was this story? When Golda Meir came to California in the 1930s, was raising money for labor Zionist settlements in Palestine, the three big stopping places were Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Petaluma. It was known, and it was known as a community with a very sophisticated Yiddish cultural life and Hebrew cultural life. So Golda wasn't the only notable person who came to Petaluma. There were leaders of the Zionist movement. There were leaders of the communist movement. There were Yiddish cultural figures. There were poets. There were writers. There were all kinds of people. They were right when they said they were on the map, and they were proud of it. As it turned out, by the time I was up there in the 70s and 80s, there was a new Jewish generation that developed and discovered the School of Jewish Community Center on Western Avenue, which many of them joined up and began creating a new Jewish life in Petaluma. That new Jewish life in Petaluma may not involve chicken farming or socialist communist squabbles, but it seems like a pretty great place. Shout out to Holly's Diner, which made an excellent breakfast. By the way, the names he gives here are pseudonyms. Khan didn't want to name residents in the book. It was out of respect, but he said that once it came out, everyone wanted to know why he didn't just use their real names. If you want to learn more about Petaluma's unique Jewish history, check out Kenneth Kahn's book, Comrades and Chicken Ranchers, the story of a California Jewish community. Thanks to Kenneth and Rabbi Feldman for chatting with me, and an extra thanks to Robin Hoffman for sending me that very first email about Petaluma. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. So Mark, I'm a little upset because I think Liel and Josh have been hanging out without us. This is like Mean Girls when they conference call, like, and then, you know... Yeah. So it's like, um, so we open our email and we have an audio file of the two of them, unbeknownst to us, last weekend going out, like having bagels without us and, and recording an audio piece. It's like they, they just went out and went rogue. Or they went etrogue. Oh, damn. Have a listen.
For most people, Sukkot is the also-ran of Jewish holidays, the second-tier celebration, the vanilla ice to Passover's M&M or Rosh Hashanah's Jay-Z. You have a meal in the sukkah, you say a blessing, you forget all about it. But Sukkot is amazing. And even if you don't want to get too heavy on the spiritual stuff, all that stuff about the temporary abode reminding us that everything in life is transient and fleeting, you still gotta love the rituals associated with the holiday. Top among them, shaking the lulav. Every day for a week, you grab together the lulav, a palm frond, the etrog, a citron, one branch of willow, or arava, and one branch of myrtle, or hadas. You shake it in all directions, symbolic of God's rule over all of the earth, and you say a blessing. That's the easy part, but how do you pick the perfect etrog? And what makes for the ideal lulav? It's Sunday, just before the holiday begins, and our producer Josh and I decided to head over to my favorite store, West Side Judaica, on Broadway and 88th Street in Manhattan. It's like a Trader Joe's for Jewish stuff, with everything from holy books to kiddush cups. But today, the only things anyone wants to buy are the Arbat Haminim, or four species, that you need to make Sukkot perfect. Baffled, we ask the expert for some help. I'm here 33 years. My name is Solomon Seltzer. So there are people lined up here buying estrogs. Yes, they're picking the nicest what they like, what their heart desires. Some people go for shape, some people go for color, some people go for cleanness. I go for shape and clean. I don't care so much about the color. And actually, I like green because now it's, it's not even the first day of Yontif. Tomorrow is the first day you shake it, and you're shaking for eight days. So I would like to have, at the end of the, end of the season, it should be because it gets yellower and yellower. So I take something lime color, which will stay till the end. No spots. It should be more bumpier than a lemon. A lemon is very smooth. This has more grooves. The top has a point, and the bottom has more a reset point, let's call it, where they cut off the estrog from the tree, from the branch. The pitma is the top. That's some people like it with, and some people like it even without. With when it grows on the tree, sometimes it falls off, and it grows further than it's still kosher. If it grows, if it came off the tree, and that's the pitam is off, then it's kaput. And people spend a lot of time here examining. Some people are in and out. Some people like anything else. Some people buy a dress in 10 minutes, and some people buy it in an hour and two hours. Lulav people, more or less, are not so picky. The main thing should be kosher. The top two leaves should be attached. How do you keep them fresh over the you know, week of sukkahs? The esrog is no problem. It stays fresh for really months. The lulav will also stray fresh if you don't keep it in a wet environment. The myrtle and the adasim and the arovas, the myrtle and the adasim and arovas, those have to be refrigerated whenever you're not using it. For these two, three hours, it's outside. You're taking it to shul and from shul. It's all right. But the rest of the time, it always has to be refrigerator. Not too cold, not too hot, regular temperature. Sukkot is sort of, you know, we think about it. It's like, oh, you know, it's not as big as Rosh Hashanah or Pesach. Is this like this every year? It's more or less, especially it's Sunday, so people are more off from work. So we think we'll have the most traffic today. It's one of the busiest day of the year. Sukkot is a more fun holiday, not like Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. It's not such a serious holiday. It's serious, but it's more fun, joyful. At the end of Sukkot, you dance with the Torah, which everybody, everybody from all different people come over to look in the synagogue how they dance with the Torahs. It's very uh, fun for the kids, for adults, all ages. Where do you get uh, all the stuff? Where do you get the Hadassim, the Lulavim, the Esrogim? Everything comes from Israel. Why is that? Uh, people want to support Israel. Um, I think they have nicer stuff. They know better how to grow these things. 
they're more experts on this. That's what I think. We have two or three paradise, it's called. Three wholesalers that have fields in Israel, and we contact with them. We keep close all year round. They come to our simchas, we come to their simchas. We're very close. This is a friendly relationship We're going on for years. We have probably the same wholesalers for the past 30-something years. Standing by a long table, an older man is feeling up etrogs with his two small grandchildren. My name is Menachem Ron. I am eight years old. Hi, I'm Izzy. And how old are you? Five. You have to see if it's kosher, and if it has any dots, then it's not kosher. And it has to have a pitum. Oh, I love They all smell nice. They all smell nice. It's a delicious smell. The citrons are laying on soft bedding to protect them from any blemishes. One blemish and the etrog's no longer considered kosher. But while some customers have already had their lulavs and etrogs for days, others are feeling that last-minute squeeze. My name's Angela. And you're now in law school. Yes, I am now a first year at Columbia Law. I saw the order forms and I was like, yeah, yeah, I still have time, still have time. Um, yeah, I just figure, you know, it, I'm guessing they still have them, hoping. What makes for, like, a great esrog tier? You know, I'm really just looking for whatever is still available on Sunday morning. <laughs> I, have, I actually have my own sukkah, too. I'm building it on the roof of my brownstone. I live in a brownstone, like, we have a floor of it, so. Is, is sukkah hard to manage when you're in grad school? Do you have to, like, find time to do all the, like, the meals and the sukkah and stuff? How, how do you do that? So I'm taking seven and a half days off of school for all the Hagims, so so that is an adventure, and we'll see how it goes. It's my first year of law school, so hoping I can manage it. One man walks out of the store not only with a requisite for a species, but also with some strange large object. It's like a bulky cylinder, about eight feet tall, covered in tarp. I got a schach. You got a schach? Yes. Where, where do you build your sukkah? In the courtyard. And on top of the schach, you put what? Decorations. The schach that goes over the sukkah, and you're supposed to see the stars through it. Where, where are you going to store This is uh, about eight feet tall. Where are you going to store this the rest of the year? It'll be stored in the place that is designated for it by the divine, and also by the super. The, the two divine authorities, the, the Lord above. The, and the Lord below, exactly. The schach is the sukkah's roof. It must be made of organic materials, and it must be loose enough to let you see the stars. But how do you get this thing home? I'm going to go in a fiery chariot that's going to descend from the heavens. So an Uber XL. That's what I said, isn't it? How do you pick your esrog? Large and bright yellow and fragrant color matters. Color is the most important thing in life. If there were purple esrogs, I would get those, because purple is my favorite color. But there are no, but they don't sell them here. Of course, I've already had my lulav and etrog and hadas and arava for days. So Josh and I go home and get ready for really what is the most underrated, most amazing holiday on the Jewish calendar. Love you, Sukkot. Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. So we have a new editor working with us. Her name is Sophia Steiner-Evoy, and she is amazing, but she's not just good at cutting audio behind the scenes. No, she's not. No. In fact, she'd only been with us, you know, a couple months when we thought, we want to send somebody across the country on two flights, followed by a bus ride, followed by a mule ride, followed by a hitchhike to end up a couple hours south of Fresno, California, to interview the country's only commercial etrog producer. And we asked Sophia to go. And I would say she... Uh, it was sort of like her unorthodox hazing, and she made it through. <laughs> she made it through the other side. The, yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. Sophia Steiner at Evoy, south of Fresno, California. My, so my producer went to the Upper West Side this morning. Upper West Side. Yeah, he tricked me. He told me Williamsburg they went to the Upper West Side. <laughs> he, he, didn't, he didn't go down to Lakewood then? No. No, too they bad. He said it was too far, and I said, too far? You sent me to California. I'm sitting on the side of Highway 198 in Exeter, California, and I'm talking to the only commercial etrog farmer in the United States this past Sunday morning, September 23rd. And as you can imagine, it's been a hectic week. Uh, I'm John Kirkpatrick. I am the farmer uh, that's been doing this now for 38 years. Kirkpatrick? Yeah, not Jewish. Uh, actually, I've been farming uh, since I was 11 years old, so I've been farming for 79 years. And 39 of that, we've been growing esrogium. 38, 38. About half of, half of my farming career at Lynn Cove Ranch, yes. By the way, I'm just teasing Josh and Liel about going to the Upper West Side. That had been the plan for weeks. But John is partial to the yeshiva sale in Lakewood, New Jersey, because that's where his business partner, Yaakov Rothberg, does his wholesale market the weekend before Sukkot. John shows me a picture on his phone that Yaakov sent him at 1 a.m. that morning. The market is still full of men inspecting the etrogs for purchase. Well, at the end of the season, any of the fruit that remains unsold uh, is taken over to the yeshiva, and um, they hold a normally a two-day sale. It was a day and a half this year from Friday morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday. And from sundown yesterday until 3 o'clock this morning. And the crowd you saw was purchasing a bargain, high-quality esrogium. 
All ours, $60 a piece. These are all the unsold etrogs, but they are by no means the leftovers. Simply the pieces that haven't been ordered ahead of the holidays. These are all quality pieces. We don't, we don't sell no junk. <laughs> I would not expect you to. <laughs> no. Quality is the name of this game, as you can tell, as you can see. All of the etrogs that Lynn Cove Ranch sells for Sukkot are grown under rabbinic supervision. They're certified kosher and qualified for making the mitzvah. Kosher is right. Yeah. It's kosher. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't grade it. I can't do that. Right. I can't do that for an observant uh, Orthodox Jew. It has to be done by an Orthodox expert. Right. Now, I can take one and say, look at this, and he can say, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, my decision is not enough. As John said earlier, quality is the name of the game. Every detail of the process must be supervised and approved from the very beginning. This started back in 1979 when Yaakov Rothberg's brother-in-law, Rabbi Yisrael Weisberger, approached John with the idea of growing etrogs here in the U.S. Weisberger wanted to know if John knew of any farmers who might be right for the job. John volunteered himself then and there over the phone. Since then, Rabbi Rothberg has opened several retail shops in New York and New Jersey, all selling exclusively Linco fruit. Now, John is certainly the original brains behind the operation, but his son Greg Kirkpatrick took over the family farm in the early 2000s. In the late afternoon, Greg showed me around Lincove Ranch. Wow. So this is the farm. Beautiful. Not really. Oh, the yard's kind of a mess. <laughs> he was exhausted, sunburnt, and a bit scratched up from the harvest. But he kindly answered all of my hard-hitting journalistic questions about citron trees. Do they have names? No. Is that like a rule, like on farms, like you don't name your plants? No, I don't know. We just never name trees. Uh, People name their animals, uh, especially (laughs) their breeding stock, I think, a lot of times. But uh, Do you love the trees? Yeah, I think, well... I appreciate them. Yes, <laughs> it's hard to love a tree that's as thorny as a citron because it's always. I mean, uh, you know, the, even now, I mean, you can see this, the scars from the season haven't all healed yet. There's still scratches on the arms from picking. So, if this all started 30 years ago, would you say like, do you feel like you grew up with these a little bit? Kind of, uh, you know, it's my dad's project, <laughs> and I was not around at the time he really got it started. I was when I was in college and spending time in the Peace Corps and things like that. And then I came home from my adventures in 1987-88, and then I started my own ag consulting business and agricultural consulting (laughs) and then doing my own thing I had my own career for uh you know 15 years or so but everyone you know at harvest time I'd always get pulled in to help out that grew into in 2003 we sat down and had the family meeting at which time 
mom and dad were saying, you know, what are we going to do with the farm? Is anybody interested? And I raised my hand and said, yes, I'll be the designated family farmer. (laughs) Am I tempted to go on a tangent and get Greg to tell me all about his experiences in the Peace Corps working in aquaculture in Guatemala and Honduras in the 1980s? Yes. Yes, I am. But we are here to talk about etrogs, and we are going to start at the beginning. The lineage of each etrogue must be confirmed in order to be considered a true etrogue, approved for a mitzvah. Well, the seed was brought in under rabbinical supervision from Israel. The original seeds that we planted 30 years, over 30 years ago um, by Rabbi Avram Teichman, who uh, uh, puts his hexer on the fruit and has uh, printed on our box. And he, we've continued to work with him for all this time. And so, for example, we're uh, starting a new uh, variety of citron. We grow five varieties now. Um, and we're starting to grow Moroccan citron. So last year he brought uh, and followed the chain of title for bringing some Moroccan seed over from Israel. And we planted that out under his supervision. And next year we'll put it in the ground here on the farm. So, what does it mean that the, the lineage is confirmed? So, those trees have been in Israel for a long time, and they're, they're the real deal. Yeah, some are, uh, so, for example, the, uh, the Hazanish variety that we grow was uh, deemed by the Hazanish to be the true lineage uh, or tree of true lineage, and so that's one of the varieties that uh, is deemed to be, you know, from the source. And so some people will only buy that variety. Others, this is Tamani here uh, from Yemen, and because uh, these trees went with the diaspora to Yemen over a thousand years ago, 1500, almost 2000 years, the, the, the seeds or the trees had been grown in backyards in, uh, in Yemen for that period of time and some people believe that this is the tree with the, the truest lineage mm. and so they will only buy a tamani fruit. So is the idea that there was some original grove in Judea and that all trees yeah. are related to that grove? That would be the Garden of Eden. I've heard of that. Mm-hmm. When I said I was going to start at the beginning, I wasn't exaggerating. Are you, so, are you observant? Um, not, I know you're not Jewish, but I'm are not, you religious? I am a Christian, uh, and I have, um, I guess, my own personal faith, deep faith, I would say. Um, but I have a great deal of trouble with any organized church. <laughs> so that's kind of uh, where it begins and ends for me, I, I guess, is that uh, I, I th- my grandmother was a Quaker. And uh, I really feel that the Quaker relationship to God is, is really kind of the one that, you know, I feel most comfortable with. So the trees are planted from approved seeds direct from the source, descended from the Garden of Eden, under orthodox rabbinical supervision, and also under the supervision of Greg, who is partial to the friends but struggles with organized religion.
Um, I'm going to pull this one off because it's got... Um, so this is obviously fruit that, well, we, our last shipment went out on Wednesday, so this is not going to uh, make it for the holiday. Uh, too small. It needs to be at least two fingers in diameter. So, Greg holds the etrogue in his left hand and places his right forefinger in the gap between his left thumb and middle finger. Granted, his fingers are a good deal bigger than mine, but it's easy to get the idea that this one is too small. Um, right now, you can see well, this is the way we measure fruit is um, by fingers. You, yeah, because you're out, <laughs> when you're out trying to pick it. Yeah, of you, course. You put your hand around it and see, and that's see that's only a, a tight one finger. Okay. So this piece would be not kosher for uh, for the blessing of the four species. That's a whole lot of effort to go through to make no profit. But that's also why the highest quality etrogues go for such a high price. John goes into more detail about the process. Grading is done in the field. At the time of picking, uh, our employees know how to recognize a fruit that has potential. So that's really a first cut. And they're in the field repeatedly during the harvest season, and they see a fruit that doesn't qualify for bad shape, has a blemish or whatever, they cut it off and drop it on the ground. When we harvest, they cut the fruit from the tree and they look at it again and if it makes uh, the second cut, it goes in that padded box in one of those slots. If it's got a blemish on it, it'll go in the bucket that's on the wagon. We get it to the packing house and we wash them by hand. and. When they dry on the table, a, a Greg or another employee can go around and, and we'll see fruit to come off. So when it comes to the, the final shipments, we pre-grade them. Greg does that himself. He does a very nice job. They're graded by the staff uh, at the store, and the customer himself makes the choice. The customer then, <laughs> you may not have heard this, the customer purchases his esrog. He can take it to a person, generally a rabbi, that he considers to be an expert and have the rabbi, the expert, the mishgia, evaluate it for him. If, if the expert finds fault, it can be brought back. You can exchange it for another piece or get your money back. You have one hour. Actually, uh, the hour rule isn't always observed. Uh, because the Mishkia may be very busy. They, they get long lines of, of people waiting uh, to have them evaluate their fruit for them. Of course, if you're driving through the San Joaquin Valley around the holidays, you can pick up a set of the four species direct from the farm, which I believe is called Farm de Succa. Yeah, Later on the farm, the sun is setting. Wow. Is this, what's your favorite time of day here? About this time. Yeah. yeah. Um, look, maybe you know, a little closer to sunset, especially when it's a little cooler. Um, I used to go up, we used to have, there's a tree up there uh, at the top of the hill. It fell over a few years ago, but it was a dead snag. Um, and um, can't see it anymore, but there was a story about when we first started this that uh, one of the growers from Israel was spying on us. And, and uh, they looked like, a band standing up on top of the hill up there. So I always used to look at it and go, you know, that, that's the, 
Sometimes I'll go up and do the blessing of the four species, and I used to go up there to do it. Yeah. Do you do you do the blessing? I make the blessing. Yeah, myself. Uh, and. Uh, In Hebrew. No. <laughs> Uh, but I have an uh, English interpretation of it. Do you enjoy it? Do you enjoy being part of this holiday, the ritual? Yeah, I, I do. It's interesting. You know, uh, one of our uh, uh, marketing, one of Yakov's crew in, in New Jersey has been with him and his kind of right-hand man for years. He comes out of grades every year and he, you know, he says, you know, you realize what a big deal this is when, one year when he was out. And I said, yeah, we get it. <laughs> well, it's funny. I know the Jewish calendar certainly more than any of my Reformed Jewish friends. <laughs> you know, I, I know uh, pretty much when, uh, not maybe, I couldn't tell you exact dates, but I know when the holiday uh, and the high holidays begin um, for the next five years. Because we always have to be planning. So next year, it's going to be a full month later. And it'll be a whole different growing strategy. So what happens after Sukkot? I think there's some Yiddish uh, proverb that the, there's nothing uh, worth less than a, a citron after Sukkot. Kind of like a Christmas tree, too. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, so then all the fruit, obviously you'll see there's still a lot of fruit on the trees. Uh, we make candied peel, a uh, little bit small quantities uh, that we sell ourselves. And... Uh, other, we sell to others who are interested in uh, culinary uses of it. Now, we also sell quite a bit to uh, a couple of distillers that make uh, uh, flavored vodka or um, cello out of it, you know, like a citron cello instead of a lemon cello. So, Lachaim, from Exeter, California, I'm Sophia Steinert Evoy, wishing you a bountiful harvest. Yeah, I would say she's definitely she's definitely a member of the team now. Yeah, she's one of us. <laughs> there's no going back there's, after that. There's no going back after that. So you guys know um, Molly Yeh, uh, the cookbook author and Food Network host, is a friend of the show. We've had her on. I've been to her house. You know, we've talked about her, I think, like already on this episode. I try to talk about her every episode. Yeah, if I know. Possible. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but someone we actually don't talk about is her husband, who is... Why, why would we? <laughs> <laughs> Her husband, Nick Hagen, is a fifth generation sugar beet farmer, um, and they live on his family's farm on the Minnesota, North Dakota border. And, you know, we've we've we spent a lot of time with Molly, but I think now is like the time to talk to Nick, especially because it's about to be sugar beet farming season. It's it's harvest season. It's, it's harvest. season and it's sugar beet farming season. Who better to talk to than an actual than the only farmer we know? So a couple weeks back, you and Liel called up Nick Hagen to talk, you know, sugar beets. You were suspiciously absent. <laughs> for that call. <laughs> we have on the line Nick Hagen. He is a fifth generation farmer of sugar beets, wheat, and soybeans in northwestern Minnesota. He studied trombone at the Juilliard School in New York City, which is where he met his future wife, percussionist and food personality and friend of the pod, Molly Yeh. And he is like taking a break during harvest to, to check in with us. Hi, Nick. Hello. What, like, what have we interrupted you doing today? You actually caught me at a good time. Uh, we are right now in between our two major harvests. So I've just finished wheat harvest, uh, which you were a part of. And then uh, now we're on our little kind of uh, getting ready period before 
the mother of all harvests, sugar beet harvest. So that'll be happening uh, starting October 1. All right. Take me through a typical day on sugar beet harvesting season. Uh, sugar beet harvest is a 24-hour-a-day uh, ordeal. And uh, so there's really a, a lack of sleep is sort of the, the theme there. Um, I usually try to grab uh, some nap time between mm, 6 a.m. and 10 a.m. or so. But otherwise, I'm running all over the place. But yeah, so it's it's a 24 hours a day. Our crew is split into two halves, and they each uh, get about 12 hours. Uh, but because I'm kind of running the show, it's um, no uh, no hour boundary for me. 12 hours of what? Of pulling? Sh- I'm so fucking ignorant about your life and <laughs> what you do. Oh, you pull beats out of the ground? I mean, I can't even begin to imagine. What do you do? Yeah, so... There's a, a machine uh, that is pulled by a tractor and it pulls the beets. The beets are like a root vegetable, just like a carrot or a radish or something like that. It pulls them out of the ground and uh, loads them onto a truck. And the truck drives a few miles to the factory and dumps off the beets into a large pile. The piles end up being larger than a football field. And um, then um during the winter we suck cold air freezing air into those piles and freeze them solid so you have just like a big sugar beet popsicle that sounds delicious having eaten a sugar beet though yeah well you know about the aftertaste so i don't that'll be the one and only time you do that like i ate a sugar beet raw which is not an advisable thing to do i don't know but you let me but like what it didn't it's not didn't taste like a beet could you sort of explain what sugar beets actually are yeah, so sugar beet's definitely a cousin to like a red beet that you'd be familiar with, um, but they're much larger and they have a high sucrose content. So they're about 18 or 20% sugar. And what happens is that sugar is extracted and it ends up being white table sugar that uh, you know, you'd all be familiar with. And kind of a little known fact is uh, over half of the sugar that is consumed in america actually does come from sugar beets that's crazy that's amazing but i want to get back to your life for a second so stephanie and i met at like eight ish at a really nice restaurant and had like a delicious breakfast with some coffee and now our day job is sitting at a table and talking (laughs) to people does this make you furious when you learn about people who have you know stupid jobs like us it actually makes me think that you would be a prime candidate to be a beet truck harvest driver because... Um, Nick, I'm closer to a sugar beet than a sugar beet <laughs> farmer. <laughs> no, you'd be perfect because you seem like the kind of person that's not intimidated by you know heavy machinery. And so a lot of our drivers are actually you know, office workers during the year, and they, they actually take their two weeks of paid vacation... And instead of going to Disney World or something with their family, they come drive sugar beets. So they take time off of work to go work. But it's just such an adventure and so out of the ordinary for them um, that they uh, they sign on. And uh, usually after the after it's all over, after two weeks, they say never again. But then uh, <laughs> comes spring. Come back next year. next year. Yeah, exactly. It's funny because isn't there just like a ton of traffic in the town because everyone's driving oh, from yeah. farms to the to the factory? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's dangerous. It's a little more dangerous. There's, there's uh, a lot of heavy trucks. I mean, each truck, you know, has 20 
ton of sugar beets in it. And if you try hitting the brakes on one of those things, uh, it's going to take you a little longer to, to stop that than uh, sedan. So most of us have really very little relationship with land. Mm-hmm. Most of us know vegetables to the extent that we consume them from buying prepackaged stuff in the supermarket. What are some of the things you feel we need to kind of reconnect with? What are some of the kind of fundamental truths about, you know, fruits and vegetables and, and the earth and the land that we've lost and really need to rekindle? Well, you make a great point because um, I think, yeah, probably most people are two or three generations removed from the farm. Um, I think one thing that's kind of interesting, uh, being a farmer uh, in northern Minnesota that I, that I see kind of in the press is, you know, you hear a lot about eating local, and uh, which is great. I totally advocate that. But not all things are meant to be grown in all places. And so um, we happen to be, the, re- the reason that it's very, difficult to grow most things in northern Minnesota is the reason why it's actually great to grow sugar beets. So most sugar in America is produced in this northern tier where we have this, we live in an icebox for half the year, essentially. So because of that advantage, we harvest our beets, we freeze them solid, and we can process them throughout the rest of the year. And that's why, you know, most of your sugar is coming from maybe a small area of the country. So if someone offers you sugar beets grown in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, just say no to eating locally. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, pass. Take a pass on that. Yeah, you can take their kale or something. Um, but then also uh, we grow wheat here. And the, the type of wheat that we grow is this high protein wheat that I think is uh, relevant to your audience because it is perfect for bagel uh baking and bread bread making and that type of thing because it's just so high protein and something like 90 percent of that type of wheat uh, is grown in north dakota alone just because this is the type of climate that it thrives in so so you're saying our new york bagels actually come from minnesota you have gone to russ and daughters and and had my wheat i can almost promise you that is that is amazing and it's like kind of perfect that you ended up marrying like a nice Jewish girl who bakes bagels all the time. It's <laughs> yeah. actually perfect, right? That's the one thing that I do think I have going for me in terms of, you know, do I miss New York? I would miss New York a lot more if I didn't have a bagel factory living in my house. <laughs> <laughs> the means and the producer of of the bagels. So prepare for the harvest. Is it like, do you work out? Like, do you listen to like pump up music like when when you know the harvest is coming like what is your what is your like winter is coming thing yeah so absolutely um uh something that i do i can't say that all farmers do but sugar beet harvest is incredibly physically demanding um so i definitely up my workout routine in anticipation of a sore back by the end of october um but outside of that um just kind of preparing for every possible bad thing that can happen. So I basically have like a second harvester, a, you know, a, a backup truck, all, all of these things, because, you know, the, these this machinery in a, in a sense was like not meant to to lift 11 million tons of sugar beets out of the ground. You know, it, it's just it's just too too much to ask. Do you listen to podcasts as as you work? 
Actually, Unorthodox is the ideal podcast to listen to. And I'm not just saying that. You guys mix your podcast in a way that um, it really cuts through the tractor noise. I can I can hear Unorthodox. A lot of podcasts I can't. It's too thumpy or bassy. Um, but but so I definitely you're saying um, we're just loud and interrupt a lot so it goes well <laughs> with with combines and tractors are we better by the way for wheat or sugar beets um I think you're a podcast for all seasons amazing <laughs> and so uh, on Sukkot we're going to be celebrating you know obviously it's the the harvest holiday and it's the one time of year for most Jews um, living in urban areas that we actually really like think about farming so what is like do you have any like reflections for us for the harvest season that we should take besides your workout regimen well, one one thing that I kind of find, uh, you know, funny, a little bit of sort of a cultural dissonance uh, with with Sukkot in particular is so it's your harvest holiday and it just so happens to smack right in the center of my harvest. So I'm not yet ready to celebrate uh, with you all, but um, Molly has definitely joined me on the tractor. Uh, so we, we do try to observe when we can, but um I'll be a, about a month behind schedule. So when you guys are having a good time, just just think think about the little guy out there on the tractor. That's so funny that like we're celebrating a hypothetical harvest that you are like still in that the middle of. And you're harvesting. like, guys, this is not the right time. You're celebrating Sukkot <laughs> way more than any of us will celebrate Sukkot. Because I'm having like Thai food and like a makeshift sukkah while you're on a actually, rooftop. That's right. <laughs> and exactly. you are doing that. So thank you for, for, for harvesting for us, really. Yeah. By proxy. No, it's it's my sincere pleasure, and um, you're always welcome to to come join uh, us again out here. We had a great time having you, Nick Hagen. A, a hungry country salutes you. <laughs> Thank you, Nick, for 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 talking with us and for all those delicious bagels. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, well, you know you know where to find them. As you can tell, we do read our mail and we listen to it. If you have feedback, write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call and leave us a voicemail, which we might play on the air. Our number is 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-4869. And we read every letter and we listen to every message. Also, do you need advice? Write to Ask Unorthodox, our weekly column at tabletmag.com. You can send us questions on anything under the sun, and if we pick your letter, we will answer it at tabletmag.com. So write to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and put Ask Unorthodox in the subject line if you have a question for us. Also, while we're hitting you guys up for stuff, while we're making you do the work for us, for Halloween, we're going to talk about Jewish superstitions. Does your family have some weird Jewish superstition, like something that Bubby or Zadie brought over from the old country or maybe picked up uh, on the farm in Petaluma or whatever? Um, and, and you wonder, is this specific to my family? Is it all Jews? Is it just uh, Sephardi Jews? Is it just Iranian Jews? Is it Where did this come from? Maybe we can help you solve it. But at the very least, tell us the story. Uh, call us again, 914-570-4869 or write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and tell us about the Jewish superstition in your family. We're traveling soon. We got live shows. We're going live. We're, we're going, going on the road. Taking this on the road. So before we go anywhere, we're going to go up to the JCC Manhattan on the Upper West Side. We're yep. there uh, October 24th for another one of our 
Lot, you know, that's like our residence. The residency yeah, continues. Like Celine Dion may have just ended her Vegas residency, but ours at the JCC Manhattan is going strong. That's going to be another great show. Um, on November 5th, we're at the Mandel JCC in Cleveland. You know, oh, I've yeah. always wanted to go to Cle- Like, I've been to Cleveland once very quickly. I want to get back there. Mandel JCC in Cleveland, uh, November 5th. And then we are puddle jumping right down to Houston the next night. We'll be at the Rubenstein JCC in Houston. Um, so the Mandels, the Rubensteins, uh, you know... Uh, Monday, Tuesday special. The Monday, Tuesday special. You guys can get more information about those. Um, If you check the Mandel JCC website and you check the Rubenstein JCC website, uh, everything's there. You can get tickets and we are excited to see you. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be really, really fun. Really amazing. We're really excited to do this. Uh, Looking down the pike, uh, January 31st, um, we will be at the Lawrence Family JCC in San Diego and then February 2nd at the Stroom JCC in Seattle. Uh, We might be squeezing in a Friday night Shabbat special in L.A on February 1st. Uh, and if Portland wants to host us on Super Bowl Sunday, February 3rd, you know, we're we're easy. Jews of Portland. Yeah, Jews of Portland. We The, the point Invite is we, us. we really want to go to Portland. I really want to stop by Powell's Books. We really want to have some microbrew. Uh, we want to go to Portland. So, you know, hit up hit up Josh Cross at his email if uh, <laughs> if you've got if you've got a home for us there. Also, um, this is not a an unorthodox live event, but it's a, it's a Butnick Oppenheimer production. We will be doing a, an event October 29th here in New York City with our friend, the Broadway legend and crazy ex-girlfriend actress Tova Felchu. We're going to discuss our movie uh, about whether or not it's okay to to say the word Jap. This is not a live show. Liel won't be there. We won't be doing News of the Jews. We'll just be talking Japs and Japiness. And it's, it's live only. Like, it's not a recording. Yeah. If you want to, if you want this, you you got to go to, to this thing. It's hosted by the UJA Federation of New York, the world's largest local philanthropy. And it's their annual NYC Women kickoff. October 29th, 2018, 7 p.m. It'll be at Temple Emmanuel in NYC. So for info on that, go to UJA Fed New York or Temple Emmanuel websites and... Uh, and come hang Mark, with me and welcome Stephanie. Welcome to the women's kickoff. You finally made it. You know, when I was invited to do a women's kickoff event, I thought um, there is nowhere that my publicists can't get me. My my army <laughs> of well-paid publicists can't get me. Stephanie, do you have a muscle top this week? I just want to say thanks to uh, listener Alyssa Meyer. She works at Etsy and she reached out and she basically was like, I'm in charge of the, like, the Jewish recreation group at Etsy. Um, and would you want to like come have lunch with us at one of our Eatsy events, which is when you get to invite people to lunch? Um, and so I got to go hang with them, meet a few of them. Um, she gave me a tour of the Etsy offices, and it was just really fun. So I love that there's like a Jew club within within Etsy. Well, there's a bunch of different clubs. Right, there's a CrossFit like, not club. Clubs, there's some there's, name for them that's like right. a some like, like an yeah, affinity like, group. Yeah, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so that is my affinity group, the Jews of Etsy. Jews so of Etsy. Thanks, guys. Alyssa Meyer of of the Jutsies. Um, I have. I hope I hope I can impose on people to let me have a lot of mazel tov. Yeah, this you week. deserve it. Uh, the first is to our friend Jacob Weisberg um, of Slate.com, which is uh, which started Panoply some time ago. And Jacob is leaving uh, the whole organization to go start a new podcast company with a little guy you might have heard of called Malcolm Gladwell. And we don't know what form that company is going to take yet, but it's going to be really exciting. And Jacob's been a big, big booster of this podcast, and we're excited for him as he as he heads out onto his own little little company. Yeah, it's exciting. So that's exciting. Um, Almost as exciting as my sister getting married, you know, which was also this past week. Uh, she and Eric had a wonderful, beautiful wedding in Chicago, and it was so exciting. I, I saw it on Instagram, you followed s- along. <laughs> you have this whole relationship with my sister on Instagram. She's amazing. Yeah. And she looked so beautiful. She had this, like, cool sort of, like, capelet thing going on, like a, a knit knit situation. Yeah, it was like a lacy, like, knit, yeah, loose, fishnet Yeah, it was very beautiful. And she had, shawl. like, the flowers. Everything was amazing. Was, I did not see pictures of you, though. 
No, she was gorgeous, and I was I was holding a baby somewhere, uh, <laughs> trying to keep him quiet. She was gorgeous, and and Eric was 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 manly, and it was a beautiful wedding, and it was so moving to be there. So Mazel Tov to um to the Oppenheimer Rolfsons, and then uh, my cousin Madeline had her bat mitzvah a few weeks ago, and we missed it because we were expecting a baby. But shout out to 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 Madeline Kirshner for her bat mitzvah. Um, also, I gotta say, uh, there was a bris in the family. It was my son uh, David Walter, and I was there. I gotta say, yeah, you were. There there and Liel was there, which was which was awesome that you guys road tripped for the bris. And I gotta say that our 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 Mohelet female Moyle Mohelet Emily Blake did a beautiful job. This is how good Emily Blake is. And by the way, this, I, there was no trade here. It's not like I said if you do the bris, you get a, a, a podcast shout out. Like this, she doesn't know this is coming, right? This is how good Emily Blake is. Is that my son didn't even wake up as he was being circumcised? No, there was not a peep. There was not a peep. He was he was. Um, snoozing. He, she has this whole system where if you nurse the baby at this time and give it a little prophylactic Tylenol at this time and put on a little anesthetic cream at this, if you do things in the right order, she tells you that the odds are your baby won't even wake up. And that is exactly what happened. It was like which, a little scary. Which was a little, which was kind, but it was also kind of beautiful because really what we were able to think about and pay attention to was, I hope, the our discussion of why we chose the names that we did and, and how wonderful it was to welcome him into the family. And it was the second day of Rosh Hashanah, so people had the day off and there were a couple hundred people there. It was just it was just great. But Emily Blake, the Mohelet, Mazel Tov to you. Next week, we talk with Harold Lipschitz, whom you know better as Hal Linden of TV's Barney Miller and Broadway's Anything Goes. And did you know, he's also a spokesman for the Jewish National National Fund. But we'll be talking about his new movie. He'll be in with his co-star Ryan Ochoa. They have a new movie out called The Samuel Project. That's Hal Linden next week on Unorthodox. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes and share us with your friends. What Facebook group are you in? What Instagram feed? What Snapchat story would dig us? Think about all the different ways that you can extend our reach out into the, the universe. Share this episode. Help us get the word out. That helps keep us going, keep us strong. And make sure, by the way, for your own benefit, this is for you. This is this is for I'm doing this for you. Make sure you personally have subscribed to the show. We don't want you to miss an episode. So hit that subscribe button on some device and then the show will auto download. And there'll be some week when you'll have a road trip and you'll have like five hours to kill and you'll just have just back to back to back to back to back unorthodox keeping you company. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and putting newsletter in the subject line. We often come to you live to book us or to advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross at jcross with a K at tabletmag.com. You might want to wear or carry unorthodox. If so, hit up bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, and stickers to put on yourself or to surround your coffee with. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbutnik. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Shira Talushkin, and Noah Levinson, who is also our senior editor. Editing assistance by Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Aharon Aria Lavi of Hazon. One of our listeners wrote in to say that he is, quote, truly dedicated to seeing Tukun Olam done through environmental justice and building communities that honor Jewish tradition, human relationships, and our connection to the planet. We record under the sukkah known as Argo Studios. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network, if only for a few more days. Shalom, friends.